From La Trobe, Asia and the Australia India Institute, this is India Rising. I'm Matt Smith. In this podcast mini series, we'll be looking at the country of India, how it works, how it doesn't, and how it got to be the place that it is today. My co host on this journey has spent his life researching, traveling, and teaching India. I'm Robin Jeffrey. I'm an emeritus professor of La Trobe University. Episode 2 Voting in the World's Largest Democracy. India goes to the polls in 2019, and the popular incumbent, Narendra Modi, is currently favoured to retain his position. With close to a billion people eligible to vote, elections in India promise to be a busy time and an organisational quagmire. This is India Rising. I think the, the mechanics of Indian democracy are amazing because yeah. uh, next year I think will be the 17th uh, national general election. The first one in uh, 1951-52 took about four months to run, four or five months to run through the winter and spring of 1951-52. They got about a 46% turnout of the electorate at that time. This was absolutely world-shaking. Nobody had ever done an election of this scale. First, they had to create voters' roles. Mm. Then they had to create constituencies. And finally, to the challenge of actually getting ballot boxes and polling stations set up in very remote corners. And Indian electoral officials since have made uh, a great thing of this, that, you know, the ballot boxes were carried into the high Himalayas, they were carried in camels across the Rajasthan desert on elephants to the farthest corners of Assam. Uh, is, that, is that myth-making or did it happen? No, it all, it all happened. There's yeah, pictures okay. of the elephants and pictures of the camels. It was the only way to reach some places. Yeah. So it's, it was an amazing task of enumeration and administration just to make this thing happen at all. And it was relatively free and fair. Ever since that time, India has run not just the national general elections, of course, but literally hundreds of state elections and now local government elections down to the level of village panchayats using a system modeled on those first elections. Today, of course, India runs uh, on electronic voting machines and these are, unlike Europe and America, these are standalone machines. There are 1.4 1.4 million of them will be deployed at the next election, one for every polling booth in the country. Mm. And uh, each machine registers only the votes that are recorded in that particular polling booth. So each machine is really registering maybe only a thousand votes. Yeah. And uh, it means that it may take six weeks to uh, conduct an Indian election, that is, it's held in stages. But uh, nevertheless, once it's, the counting begins, you get the results within five or six hours because it's really just a question of adding up the sum total of 1.4 million boxes yes. around the country. Yeah. Uh, and it does mean that the electronic system is not capable of being attacked or uh, corrupted in any way by outside influences because these are funny little boxes that are totally self-contained with no contact with the, the web the outside world. They're like those old original Challenger computers of 35 years ago. They just sit in a box and do what they're told. So the electoral system is amazing. And the the Election Commission of India is one of the few Indian institutions that is still, I think, widely respected throughout the country and overseas by anyone who's in the electoral business, Mm. that this is a system that really works. The government takes responsibility for enumerating its citizens and getting them on the roll. If citizens don't have to beg to get on the roll, the government enumerates them rather, as we do in Australia. 
And the system at that level is remarkably free and fair. And it's a first-past-the-post system, so it's relatively easy yeah. to administer. Yeah. That surprises me in some ways because mm. I, I don't want to generalize, but usually if there's something that can go wrong in India, especially something complicated, then it will yeah. invariably go wrong in some ways. And yeah, you make that sound like a... A very smooth operation. I think that's why it has this universal respect, yeah, that, uh, almost enough. universal respect, that yeah. it has been free and fair. The other thing with the system is because of the powers, the Constitution prescribed that there be an election commission and election commissioner. And the powers of the election commissioner are really s substantial. And that person can, once an election is called, really has powers that exceed those of local state governments and officials mm. to decree where the police are to be located, uh, what officers are to be presiding in particular parts of the country. So it takes out some of the political sting that is so often there in the conduct of elections in other countries. And the actual mechanics of it, it's uh, conducted like a major relief operation. The returning officers and the officials are usually... Uh, college lecturers, teachers, who are co-opted by the government. So the elections have to be timed so that they don't coincide with, for example, major statewide examinations, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, because the teachers and administrators of colleges and schools are necessary as polling officers. Uh, the briefings are substantial, very detailed. If you go on the web today, the Election Commission of India has a wonderful website with lots of illustrative videos where you can learn about uh, how the election is to be conducted yeah. and where officers can familiarize themselves with the techniques and the technology they're going to have to use. In the old days, it was similarly terribly complicated because you had huge packages of paper ballots had to be distributed all around areas that didn't have particularly good communications. So mm. the elephants and the camels and the horses and the donkeys are not fictitious. They did have to be deployed in some areas where the roads weren't good enough to carry road traffic with the, the boxes and the ballots. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. And and here in Australia, we're still operating by paper ballots. So hey, it's yes. way ahead from what yeah. we're, we're doing. We're still struggling with the, with the tablecloths. So yeah. what are people voting for then? What's the system that the government has in place? There's state elections and you're voting on people at that level. But there's also uh, essentially an, an upper house and a lower house there's a national parliament with two houses, an upper house which is not voted on directly by the people, chosen in a, with another system, which is an interesting system, uh, not directly uh, relevant to the electoral process mm. that involves ordinary people, ordinary citizens. That's for the lower house. The national parliament, there are 545 seats. A couple of them are appointed. The 543, I think, are uh, directly elected from territorial constituencies. Sorry, so, I should remember what it's called. The Lok Sabha. Lok Sabha. Lok Sabha. And the upper house is the Rajya Sabha, the house of the states and the house of the people. Mm -hmm. And the Lok Sabha has uh, a state like Uttar Pradesh, which is the biggest of the Indian states with a population of 200 million people, has 80-plus Lok Sabha constituencies, okay. and they're territorial. So anyone who's familiar with the Canadian or Australian or British uh, electoral system will understand how that works. You have mm -hmm. a local member of parliament. And then it's a federal system. So Uttar Pradesh is a state of the Indian Union. It has, just as an Australian state, 
British uh, Canadian province has a premier. In India, they call them the chief minister. So the chief minister of Uttar Pradesh, with its 80 national seats, has a legislature with more than 400 state seats, similarly uh, organized as territorial constituencies. And the chief minister of Uttar Pradesh uh, has to command a majority in the state legislature. He has to also to win election from one of these territorial constituencies. So for a Brit, a Canadian, an Australian, it's not too hard to see how the system works and where the inspiration, not surprisingly. I was about to from. say that's probably yeah. given the inspiration for theirs is the same as the inspiration for ours. Yes, the Indian Constitution contains a lot of the features of the 1935 Government of India Act, which was the last legislative enactment that the British did before they left India. 1935, they gave the vote to about 13% of the Indian population, and there were two elections carried out under the 1935 Act yes. in 37, 38, and then again in 1946. So there would be families in India that have been voting for five or six generations if they happen to be particularly uh, well-placed, well-educated, and living in a major city like Calcutta or Mumbai, which had local government elections mm. going back to the 1880s. The British first set up a local government system in India in the 1880s, partly to pass the buck so that local governments were going to be required to raise taxes and do things like sewage and rubbish collection and uh, providing of taps and pumps and drinking water and so on. So it was a way of saying, well, we're going to let you elect a mayor of Bombay and a municipal council at Bombay on a very small franchise. You know, you had to own property and have a level of education to be able to have a vote. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, we're going to let you do that. And then it's going to be your job to collect the garbage and make sure the uh, water taps are running and look after floods and the monsoon, the features that local government uh, has to carry out. So it was a nice way of transferring responsibility for the things closest to the citizens yeah. to the citizens themselves and saying, well, no, actually, we, the, the foreign rulers, we only do the important stuff. You guys mm. have got to do the, the local stuff. Mm. Uh, from the British point of view, of course, it was all about educating people for self-government, but there was an element of the self-serving in the talk about self-government. Mm. Mm. So uh, when you uh, have an election in the Indian government, do you have, like in other Western democracies, two parties who swap power between each other on uh, a semi-regular basis? Indian politics has become much more fractured. fractured in the last, certainly the last 30 years. For the first 20 years after independence, the Indian National Congress won elections. There were there were four elections before the system begins to break down. Three of those were held while Nehru was still prime minister. So the Congress commanded a majority in all those first four. And then Nehru's daughter, of course, led the party in 1967 elections. Mm. Uh, and it won a narrow majority at that stage. And from 1967, the system began to fragment uh, it's into local parties, particularly regional parties. And at the moment, the BJP is overwhelmingly in the national parliament. Uh, BJP has 272 seats. That is a majority in the national parliament. And then everybody else is miles behind with uh, probably 10 parties adding up to the rest of the other 230 or 240 seats. So is it a coalition against the BJP, even if it's not 
there isn't at the moment. There no. is no coalition against okay. the BJP. This is the talk for the elections of 2019, mm. that somehow there will be a grand coalition which will allow the BJP to be challenged and perhaps such a coalition government could be formed. But that's a very long way from happening at the moment. The talks are going on for mm, that. Mm. And this kind of horse trading has been part of Indian politics now since 1967. Uh, so it's not something that Indian politicians are having to learn on the run. They, mm. they know all about how it's done. The 2019 election, I think, is uh, one that at the moment people are beginning to say, well, it doesn't look, given the fractured nature of Indian politics, it doesn't look as if the BJP can win a majority again in its own right. But uh, I think uh, you wouldn't want to bet the farm on that particular prediction. Yes. Uh, I think uh, the BJP are capable of pulling rabbits out of the hat between now and next May, when the elections are probably likely to be held and mm. have to be held by then. There are two big state elections which have to be held before the end of January, uh, one in Rajasthan and one in Madhya Pradesh. Now, these are big North Indian states that the BJP has governed uh, for the last 15 years. Those state elections will be hard fought if there's to be a coherent opposition or if it looks as if there's a real opposition emerging. We'll get some indication in those state elections. So mm -hmm. the BJP will throw a lot into those state elections to try to win them again, simply to strengthen their hand for the uh, national elections in May next year. But long term, it seems like it might be BJP's election to lose if they did. I don't think anyone would deny that the BJP will emerge as the largest single party mm. in the next national general elections, um, whether they can whether command they can a majority it, in their government. own right. Yeah. But given the nature of the fractured system, mm. it's not a great task that if you come back 30 or 40 seats short to round up from the other 10 or a dozen parties that are represented in the parliament, enough members who are prepared to join you as a coalition. If the goodies are good enough, you know, if the, uh, what should we say? Incentives. Yes, yes. If the cake <laughs> on the table can be sliced in a way. If the statue in their <laughs> district is big enough. Well, that's right. That's <laughs> Actually, that's not bad. If, if you build some statues in their constituency. Then uh, they will come. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. That's uh, certainly a, uh, not too difficult to do. Let's move on to Modi then. Current Prime Minister, he's been in power for four years now, uh, due for the election next year. Landslide victory with the BJP when he won the last election. How's he going? Is the shine worn off a bit? Both realistic, but also um, terribly proud and self-assured. He can be confident of being the largest political party after the next general elections. I think that's almost a certainty. If they do get across the line with a majority in their own right, it will be because of the personal factor, that he is still a very valuable political property, because he's seen as uh, the strong prime minister who's telling India's story, uh, telling it to the world. And uh, he's a, a very, very good media person, and he has a great capacity, I think, to hire people who are able to understand how modern media work. And not when we say modern media, that is the next wave. The, this man uh, seems to have been fascinated with media for the last 30 years. Uh, for example, in the 2014 election, 
he was able to deploy, he had the money to do it, but he also had the noose to want to do it. What they called video vans, which were able to beam three-dimensional images of ah, Modi. The Modi holograms. In, the holograms, yeah. yeah. They were capable of doing 200 villages a night with him in Ahmedabad, mm. in comfort, going to bed at 10 o'clock. Or, well, Modi, I don't think, goes to bed at 10 o'clock, more like 11. But with Modi doing a political speech, which looked as if he was in your village speaking to you. Mm. Now, the Congress could have done that. They were in power. They had the funds to do that. But they just didn't have the understanding of what the technology could do. The initiative went to someone like Modi. So he was on top of mobile phones at a very early stage as well. So he's always looking for the next break. He's a tweeter, and I think he has an immense Twitter following. He will have a staff of able young people running that account. Oh, of course. But the judgment often will be his, I think, in all of these things. But he does have, a, I think, a terrific capacity for gauging able people. Mm. Uh, I suspect scaring the bejesus out of them uh, about the task they have to perform. And if they do it well, he backs them. But he knows what he wants and he knows how to find people who can get it for him. So, mm. And he's totally committed to being prime minister, you know, to being the leader, to imposing a vision of India on the country. So a couple of the big issues that India is facing in the next coming election, if we could go through them. The first one is that the media in India is struggling to remain impartial. There's a lot of pressures on the media in the way that they tell their stories. Yes, I, I think India up till now has had a pretty remarkable free media story. And I think even today, you can probably get your story out somewhere in Indian media, but not in the mainstream stuff. And mainstream media is becoming increasingly centralized and great corporations own uh, media outlets and great corporations are subject to pressure from governments. Mm. Uh, the other side of this is that the BJP and its most aggressive Hindu chauvinist followers are great trollers so they if you write something that they don't like they'll be on you and make your life miserable mm. uh, digitally but also there's in there's physical intimidation the uh, beating up of journalists have been four fairly prominent journalists have been murdered in the last five years for espousing left-wing views that offended the Hindu right and there have been some arrests now in those cases and these are not people associated with the BJP or even the RSS but they are associated with uh, aggressive Hindu organizations that say that our story is the only story mm -hmm. that shall be told. There's much, much greater tendency for ordinary journos to self-censor, to know what the bosses and the proprietors want and what's going to get you into trouble or get you even attacked. Uh, there's that side of it. And then the concentration of Indian media, old media, is contracting. So there are fewer owners larger corporations, lots of TV stations, lots of outlets, but probably fewer owners than there were 20 years ago in the uh, print-on-paper end of media. And print-on-paper in India is also into digital in various ways now. The other thing with Indian media is that, that is it's a saving grace. It's decentralized on the basis of language because India has more than 20 official languages of one kind or another that can be used in states for official purposes, but they're written in 11 different scripts. There are local newspaper proprietors, local media proprietors, who still wield a lot of SWAT 
in their particular corners of the country, still are important figures. So if we say that media freedom is being curtailed, that's probably true in some areas, and perhaps most of all in English, in areas that affect international perceptions. This, I suppose, kind of spills into other areas of, of violence, particularly against minorities and religion and also gender. And that's becoming a big issue in Western countries, a bigger issue, which is spilling over into India as well. So this is all kind of a consideration. It is. Uh, I, I think some people might hypothesize that as a larger and larger component of young Indian women get to the stage of high school and beyond, they're going to become an increasingly important vote in Indian elections. Because I don't think there's any question the BJP is a very patriarchal kind of party and the Hindu vision it has is of nice domesticated wives at home cooking dinner having babies looking after children Mm. and it also too often in the hands of extreme elements condones all sorts of assaults on women that women are really not to be listened to Uh, women are there to serve the men they've been married to and that they are more than that they should be content to be married to the men that their parents choose for them Mm. that may become increasingly challenged in future at the moment in september 2018 there have been at least two really nasty murders of a Dalit man, that is a formerly we called them untouchable man, who marries a young woman who's a higher caste, uh, the man being murdered, cut down in the street by wow. hired, hired thugs, presumably at the behest of somebody associated with the family or with those who simply don't like the dishonor being brought on the, the caste of the higher caste woman. Mm. Um, and the prime minister's doesn't make a big thing of this. There's no outrage speech from the PM saying that this has been a terrible thing. This is not an issue that the BJP particularly wants. Now, whether that kind of story is going to attract tens of millions of young women now in high schools and colleges over a long period uh, remains to be seen but it it may be that it doesn't and that an alternative woman leader and this is where i think people look to priyanka gandhi as a possibility an alternative woman leader might be a very powerful kind of Mm. uh, alternative to this sort of story so what does india see the election issues of 2019 being then it's a very interesting question i mean modi fought the last election on this slogan of vikas development Mm. economic development. Uh, The betting seems to be that the BJP will not fight the election so explicitly on Vikas because uh, it hasn't been that notably felt by very large numbers of people. Certainly some people have, I think, have done quite well. The economy has done reasonably well in the four years they've been in power. But the spectacular improvements in the the living of the very poor hasn't been evident. Mm. So I think the betting would be that the BJP will try to t- turn this much more to election about the identity of a great new India. Make uh, India great again. Make India great again, that kind of slogan. And of course, the statue of Vallabhai Patel mm. uh, near Vadodara is quite a a useful thing to be kicking off a campaign with. 
You've been listening to India Rising, a podcast from Latrobe Asia and the Australia India Institute. It featured Robin Jeffrey, and I'm Matt Smith, your host and producer. This has been a podcast from Latrobe University. Thanks for listening. <laughs>